Father, we come before you. We sit at your feet. We desire to learn from you. We desire to take upon our shoulders your yoke, for your word says your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Help us, Lord, to really maintain in our minds what you desire to teach us, that we may follow you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and all the strength that we have. And Father, when we are in error, we know that you gently correct us. And when we are doing well, you encourage us. And we'd pray for both this morning. If we are going the wrong way, please just by your spirit, and we know you will do it gently, correct us. But Father, if we are doing well, may you fill us full of encouragement and help us to maintain that hope that we will see you one day face to face, just as Moses did. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 32, we are going to be moving on. We've stuck here for a little bit just to cover a few things, but in context, Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days. He received revelation from God, the Ten Commandments. The people who were left down in the valley engaged in revelry and pagan worship. Moses came down and found out they had made a golden calf that was fashioned by his brother Aaron, and this idolatry was something abhorrent to God. And he sent Moses down, and God threatened to destroy the people. And for us, I know it, it's difficult at times. We want to have an image, something tangible. Like if you're from Missouri, it, isn't that the show me state, uh, Missouri? That's how you say it, right? Missouri? Not Missouri. Missouri. There you go. There, there's people from Missouri over here or around that area. But it's this idea that we, we want something tangible. We won't believe it unless we see it. And this is the dilemma that the Israelites had. They did not see Moses for 40 days. What happened to him? They did not have something they could worship because they had their own gods uh, that they would worship in Egypt. They would make statues and monuments and temples to these gods. And that was the way of the world back then. That's what they were used to. Their default setting was depravity. And so if they don't see a God and they have this inbred item that says worship God. And everybody has it. It just depends on who you are worshiping or what you were worshiping. And the Israelites had this dilemma. They didn't see Moses. They didn't hear from God. And so they decided to construct their own God, this God that was a bull and this God that represented strength, this young calf is what this was. And they bowed down to it and they drank and they were involved in revelry and orgies and everything that was just not acceptable in the eyes of God. So God was angry with them. But our problem is the same. We want something tangible to worship. And God says we are more blessed if we do not see than those who actually got to see like Jesus in the flesh. When we have a nativity scene or sometimes like in the Catholic church or in the Orthodox church, they will have icons, these paintings with a halo around them and they will venerate them and they will barely touch them. Or if you go into a Catholic church and you see the saints there, the the feet of the saints are worn because people go up and touch them and venerate them. And I've even witnessed a woman almost bowing down to a statue of Mary 
and praying to the statue for hours at a time. And God says, we're not to do that. We're to worship in spirit and in truth. And so this was the dilemma that the Israelites had. And God does not allow a visual representation of himself. Any image would obscure God and who he actually is. We cannot form something with our own hands and hope to replicate who God is in his being. An image denies the basic nature of God. Of course, he's everywhere at one time. How do you put that in a little idol? You don't do that. What image might we find to resemble him? According to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18, there is no image that we can come up that would resemble him. And so this trek of these Israelites, they come in verse 15 as Moses is turning down the mountain. He hears what's going on. God tells him is not good. And the enemy is behind this. The enemy that we know of is Satan. He is real. Uh, There are many today who have turned away from the faith that say Satan is not a real individual. He is as real as you or as me. He is a spiritual being. I believe that the angels, when they were created, had the ability to manifest, uh, to become like human beings. And will Satan do that? I don't know if he will do that or not, but we do know that in the end times he will possess what is known as the Antichrist, and he will lead and guide him. Just like Jesus Christ had the Holy Spirit, the Antichrist will have the spirit of Satan dwelling inside of him. And so it was Satan that got a hold of these Israelites and told them, you need to have an idol of some kind. Set this idol up and worship it and sacrifice to it because he knows that is anathema, that is cursed uh, according to God. God says, don't do it. Don't be involved in that kind of thing. So this is what the people did. Moses turned and went down the mountain in verse 15 with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. These are the Ten Commandments. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is a sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to a powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Now, In the vernacular of our day, Moses was ticked. He comes off of that mountain and he sees what's taking place, especially after all that God had done. Just one miracle alone. You know, you had the plagues that that the Israelites experienced or they saw the Egyptians experiencing. But then the sea, you know, going through the Red Sea, a wall of water on either side. Could you imagine seeing that just walking by this like you'd grab that wall and put your hand on that wall right there you could stick your hand into the wall of water go oh that's kind of creepy you know is that water going to come at me just seeing that and imagine if you could see fish in there as well a fish comes right up and looks at you and then takes off and goes in another direction 
What an incredible miracle that would take place. Or that God speaks at the, when you're at the base of the mountain. No, we don't want to hear God speak. You would think that God had made himself known. And then the Israelites go, oh, 40 days, that's it, I'm done. We're not worshiping this God anymore. We're turning to our own ways. And we think we know what's best. So we're just going to do it. And they prescribed their own liturgy for worshiping this calf that they had made. And that's also our tendency. We want to worship God the way we want to worship God, right? We make up liturgy. We make up a process. We make up, like for instance, if uh, scripture says, worship God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that means many different things to many different people. And many people will just simply say, well, this is all I can give. This is what I have. And so, you know, with my heart, the limited problems that I have with it, this is how I'm going to worship God. I'm going to do it my way. How many people do you know that have just sold out everything for God? Now, there's people like Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa, she did have her problem with Mary. I understand that. But she gave up everything. There are people who are going over to Africa that are endangering their own lives to go out and give the gospel. They are forsaking everything in this life. And these, these people, they're still people. They're still sinful in their natures. They still blow it. They still make mistakes. But they get right back up and go say, I'm going to go forward with God. The Israelites were not those kinds of people. Now, the Levites, they were the ones that were called up in order to carry out the judgment of God upon the people of Israel when they had gotten into idolatry and the orgies and everything else. And they were sold out to God. And to this day, you know, when it comes to an image, you cannot go to Israel and have a Jew be comfortable with any, any image that you would make. If you go over there, and I've been to this Italian restaurant over there, and you'll see landscapes painted on the wall. You know, if you guys have been to this, uh, this Italian restaurant, uh, Maricieros or Maricieros, that's over there off of Highway 8 and Lake Jennings, if you look on the walls, you'll see landscapes, right? They are very careful over in Israel to just paint landscapes and do not put any image of anything on there. Do not put a goat, do not put a cow, do not put a person, because they are very sensitive to this fact of making an image. They will not have it, they do not want it, they think it is a sin and it brings upon them a curse, and so they won't have anything to do with it. And that goes all the way back to this point right here where this calf was made and constructed. And this impatience mixed with doubt, it was a recipe for disaster, as I told you last week, and depravity is our default setting, just like it was theirs. And because this was the mode of the people, God said, okay, now you're going to take this calf, Moses, and you're going to grind it up, you're going to burn it, and you're going to have the people drink it. Now, God was hoping, I'm sure he made it come to pass, could you imagine drinking a bunch of ash because this was made of wood and there was gold in it. He burnt it and he took that ash, he threw it in the water and he said, now you drink that. Could you imagine just going home, going into your fireplace, grabbing a scoop of ash, throwing it in some water and passing it out to your family saying, here, drink this. This is going to do you some good. You would cough, you would choke, you would you know, probably do several things that would cause you to run to the bathroom. It just wouldn't be good. God wanted this fact of worshiping idols to sicken these people. Oftentimes, we get involved in idol worship and it doesn't sicken us. We like it. We say, this is good. But God wants it to be something that is bitter to us. 
whenever we get involved in something that is sinful like that, God wants us to be bitter. And that's what we should pray for. Whenever we want to turn to the left or to the right and not stay on the path, we should pray that God would make these things bitter to us, that they would not be fruitful or tasteful in our lives, that they would never take root. And so that's what God did. And then God, after that, and this is symbolism that is encapsulated, it's inferred in the text, he wanted this idol worship to make them sick and then become their waste. That's what God considered idol worship to be. If you look at the symbolism behind it, you're just going, wow, God really hates this idol worship thing, doesn't he? Yeah, I think so. And that's why God carried this out and said, you will not have it. Now, there are three enemies, not just Satan, that we have to contend with. Satan is one of them. He is the prince of darkness. We are told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So Satan, we actually fight against Satan. Now, is it Satan himself or is it his minions? Are you ever tempted with something and then you just get this feeling like, go ahead, just do it. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh, that won't hurt. Go ahead. Yeah, just, you get this little prompting, right? You ever get that from your peers when you're doing something? Especially, remember high school and college? Go ahead, man, do it. You know, and you, you just be pushed over the edge to go ahead and try something. You see all these extreme sports that are going on. There are these extreme stunts and people are getting hurt all the time. Yeah, I can do this. I can do this. No, you can't. That's Satan or that's his minions coming along and tempting us to do something that God would not have us do. So he is an enemy number one in some cases. Sometimes he's number three. Then there's the world. We are not to love the world nor the things of the world. First John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Have you guys ever seen, you know, if you go through the news, um, at the bottom of the news, a lot of time they'll have these things to click on. Click on this. Oh, the... 10 most expensive yachts in the world. And you click on that. I want to see what those yachts are like. And I see these palatial yachts. I'm just going, what? They have their own speedboats. They have their own diving systems. Their tanks, their compressors in there. They have sea dews. They have a helicopter landing pad. And I look at that now and I go, that's a lot of work and money. There's no way I want something like that. But somebody who has unlimited money, they say it's no big deal. You know, it's not a problem. And do we fall in love with things like that? If you love going on the sea and you saw that, go, wow, I'd love to have that yacht. Or what if you had your own jetliner, your own plane, and you decked that thing out? You know, how would that be? Would you just, wow, that's what I want in my house. And it's just work for me right? Everything out there is just work. It's just a problem. It breaks, it peels, it cracks. And so we need to turn away from that stuff. And the world says, no, you need this. Have you ever been tempted at Christmas time to go buy something that you really didn't want once you bought it? And then all these re-giftings take place and you take all these gifts back because you really don't want it because it really doesn't satisfy you. You just got to store more junk and you got to build a shed out back to handle the junk that's already in your garage because it's getting too packed. You got to buy more boxes and store them. You know, that type of thing. It's just not where it is at as far as God's kingdom and God's economy is concerned. Then there's the flesh. The flesh is the worst. I mean, 
depending on where you are, what you're experiencing. But the flesh, it demands of us certain things. Like, have you ever tried to deny your flesh food? What does your body do? Your body says, feed me. And if you don't feed me, what does your body do? I'm going to hurt you if you don't feed me. And if you don't feed it even after that, I'm going to shut you down and make you weak. If you don't feed me, you'd better feed me. And so your flesh is demanding. It's like a toddler. The toddler says, now. And you're going, no, I won't. Yes, you will. And there's this constant battle going back and forth. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, these types of things that are in the world, the flesh is susceptible to that. And so these are the enemies that we deal with. This is what the Israelites were dealing with. The flesh, they wanted something to look at. They wanted something to worship. Satan was coming along going, go ahead, Aaron, just build this calf. It'll be good. The people will be calm. You don't have to worry about it. You can lead them. Go ahead. You can do it. And then the whole camp, the world itself is going, yeah, we demand this. And you get this crowd mentality, right? Yeah! yeah, have you seen crowds just going wild for the past couple months out on the streets everywhere? It's the crowd mentality. And God says, no, don't do that. Go against the flow. Now, this idea that we are in a battle, of course, most of you know this. Ephesians chapter 6 begins in verse 10. It talks about the full armor of God that we're supposed to put on the full armor. Remember, it's the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, your loins girt about with the, tr- the truth. You have the shield of faith that is up there and the sword of the spirit. The shield of faith, it is able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. Now, if you put that stuff down, if you're not engaged in the battle, you're getting hit left and right. If you're sitting down, you know, imagine being a target with arrows and you don't have your shield up. What's going to happen to you? You're going to look like a porcupine. And you think, well, I'm fine. It's just a flesh wound. It's not a flesh wound. It will disable you in your walk with God. And so God says, put up your shield of faith. Believe that he is the one that is going to keep you, that he is the one that's going to restore you, that he is the one that's going to bring you from one end of your walk to the other. The only reason we don't get there is because we refuse. That's what the Israelites did. They refused. No, let's just stay here on this side of the Jordan. No, we don't want to go into the desert. A bunch of complainers which were out there. You know, it was just a terrible environment that Moses was dealing with all the time. And he was also one that was complaining. But our weapons that we fight with, like these individuals here, these Israelites, they weren't fighting against Satan or against the flesh or against the world the way that they should. We are supposed to use weapons that are spiritual and not carnal, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, which means it's, it's your mind. The helmet of salvation is there to protect your mind. Your mind is something that can be easily influenced by the information that is around you. Do you guys know this virtual reality that's coming up? Have you seen that? You can now buy these attachments, and if you have a big, um, like, iPhone 7, and you stick it on this eyeglass thing, you put it on there. Have you seen people, like, at McDonald's, just, you know, going like this with that thing on? They say it alters your perception of reality even when you take it off. It's like the Matrix. You know, you take that thing off, and you... You're just going somewhere else. The mind is so easily influenced. 
And we have to be careful not to let the world, not to let the flesh, and not to let Satan get a hold of that. We need to be praying against that. We need to be in the word, and that's what arms us. And so the first thing we have here is the enemy. The enemy is the flesh, it is the world, it is Satan. That's what the Israelites were dealing with, and they failed at this particular task, but they committed, secondly, what is known as an egregious sin, which means it's outstandingly bad. It is not just a little bad. It is outstandingly bad. In this section of scripture here, it talks about their sin being a great sin. This is not a little sin. This is a great sin. In verse 21, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? The great sin is idolatry. But in verses 8 and 9, if we back up a little bit here, I want to read this to you. It tells us exactly what was involved in that idolatry. It says, They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. They have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people or a stiff-necked people. So, number one, it was disobedience. They weren't doing what God asked them to do. Secondly, they fashioned an idol. They actually took time to make this thing, and Aaron was one who probably put the gold on the outside. Maybe he was in charge of carving it as well. We don't know. Thirdly, they bowed down to it. This is detestable to God. They sacrificed to it, and then in their disobedience, they were stubborn or they were stiff-necked. That's what that means. You know, when... um, you have to endure pain, especially like as a guy or even as a woman. If you go in to a phlebotomist, the one who takes blood, and you sit down and you put your arm out there, they say, oh, there's a vein right there. And they wipe the thing down and they pull out this needle. Sometimes the needle is big, sometimes it's small. If you're giving blood, it's a big needle, right? So they take that needle and they put it in your arm. Now, do you just sit there and go, ah, okay, it's going to be fine? Or do you go, like that you tense up and okay and they say it's going to pinch a little bit no it's going to hurt and I wish they would say it's going to hurt because it would prepare you more they just say it's going to pinch no it's pain you go to see the doctor for stuff like that it's pain I recently had a little mole cut out you know and and the, the doctor was sitting there and just hitting the little Novocaine or whatever it was around the mole and I'm going oh oh okay that's that's just fine. And then she takes out the scalpel and starts carving, you know. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting. And then I felt, it's like, well, I feel that, you know. But she goes, okay, all done. So it was all done. I had a hunk of flesh cut out. You know, my neck was going stiff at that point. I was just going, I didn't want it to take place. And when we go through trials with God, what happens? No, I don't want to do this. Instead of just surrendering and going, Okay, God, this is going to hurt. I know it's going to hurt, but I'm going to let you do it. To keep us from falling into a great sin. You know, we're supposed to just relax. And these people, they should have trusted God. They should have remembered the works that he did and not fallen into this idolatry. And yet this is called a great sin. They were disobedient. They fashioned an idol. They bowed down to it. They sacrificed to it. And then they were stubborn and stiff-necked in their obstinance. 
They were just as obstinate as can be. Now, obstinate, the definition, adhering to an opinion, purpose, or course in spite of reason, arguments, or persuasion. I once uh, invited a Jehovah Witness elder into my house, sat him down with his wife, and I was going through the scriptures, and I would turn to the different scriptures, and he happened to have what is known as a diaglot. The diaglot is a scripture that they used to use before they changed it to the New World Translation. In the diaglot, there are several scriptures that have not been changed. And so I had my Bible open. I said, could you read this in your version? And it pointed out that Jesus was clearly God in their version. You could tell it was right there in the diaglot. And I said, see, it's, it's right there. It's in your Bible. It says Jesus is God. I said, now won't you turn and believe that Jesus is God? He goes, nope, won't do it. And he closed his Bible. He said, we're done here. <laughs> Obstinate. In, in spite of what reason dictates, he just said, no, we're done. And he just took off. And I, I thought to myself, Really? Are, are we going to be, am I so obstinate that I will not see the truth when it's right in front of me? I pray to God that we, none of us ever do that. That we are just open to the moving of the Spirit, the Scripture that is there, the clear understanding of those Scriptures so that it might affect us in a positive way. Not that we might remain blind, and that's what the Israelites were doing. They were making themselves blind. It's like the person who hears some instruction that they they don't want to listen to and what do they do with their fingers and their ears and then what do they do with their mouth you know what they do right blah 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 blah. i don't hear any and they just block it out that's being obstinate again i pray to god that we are not obstinate in this verse 22 moses is interceding here he says do not be angry my lord aaron answered You know how prone these people are to evil. Aaron is talking to Moses here. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. They gave it to me, or they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and it out came this calf. (laughs) What do you think Moses said? Oh. Oh, I understand now. No, he didn't say that. I wonder what the conversation was. Did Moses turn to him and go, really? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. He's with God. There's probably more conversation that happened between Moses and God. We don't have it here in the scriptures. But God is one who likes to inform. And so he probably told Moses, Moses, they've made a calf. And uh, your brother, you know, he's probably not doing what he should. And so he walks up to Aaron. Aaron, what's going on here, man? This is not good. Oh, Moses, please don't be angry with me. I just threw the gold in there and it, the cow came out all by itself. Yeah, right. It's just total lie. You know, this, have, have you ever heard of the guy named Howard Wright? You may not have heard of him, but you've probably heard this. Excuses are lies wrapped up in reasons. Right? And so he's offering this excuse, which is a lie, and he tries to give some type of viable, some life-filled reason that Moses will accept. And Moses isn't accepting it for a second, but Aaron was trying to handle this act of rebellion and sin in such a way to get him off the hook. 
He, he didn't want to be responsible for what took place. And of course, he was responsible, right? Now, there is a way if you get involved in a sin that you shouldn't be involved in. If you get caught, how are you supposed to handle it? Well, the first thing is usually to give an excuse or to give some reason. Why? To justify, right? And we know it's clearly wrong. Have you ever seen that uh, show, and I mentioned this before, Bait Car? The excuses people come up with for stealing the car. I mean, they just lie through their teeth, and it's all on the camera. I mean, just blatant lies. Well, we are all guilty like that, too. If God just took the video of our lives, and God said, well, you did X, Y, and Z. Do you agree with me? Well, but God, like Adam goes, it's the woman, right? He didn't take the responsibility. He was making an excuse for his wife to get him off the hook. And this goes all the way back to the fall and in creation. And we are his children. We do the exact same thing. We want to come up with excuses. David had it right. David, King David, who was a man after God's own heart, you know, when he had slept with Bathsheba and his son was conceived and the son died and he had Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, killed on the battlefield. He was an adulterer and he was a murderer, right? And he he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Well, Psalm 51 records his conversation, his prayer to God. And this is how he handles it. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. So what Aaron should have done is he should have turned to Moses and said, I have sinned. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against people. And most of all, I have sinned against God. And he should have just admitted his sin right there, just like King David did. King David had to be confronted before he was willing to get to that point. But that's the way to handle it right up front. If we also have a relationship with somebody 
where we are clearly in the wrong. Now, that's half the battle to admit that we are in the wrong. But to go to them and say, you know what? And you know how when uh, you're stiff-necked, your shoulders are kind of back, right? I'm right in this. Just relax the shoulders. Let them droop a little bit. Put your head down just a little bit and say, I was wrong. I was not right in this. Will you please forgive me? When we do that, God turns to us and goes, Bravo, bravo, young man or woman, whoever you are. And God speaks with an English accent. And, and, and that's what God does for us because we are recognizing our sin. And he goes, this is good because we can't change our state. Only God can change our state. And we have to turn to him and say, will you change my state? And he will. And David was forgiven of the murder of the adultery. The sin, the results of the sin did not leave him. But God granted him forgiveness, and we will see him in heaven, even though he was an adulterer and he was a murderer. Because we see the testimony in Psalm 51 of how he handled this. So, so far we have the enemy, we have the egregious sin, we have the excuse that was delivered by Aaron, but then there's the end result. Verse 25 says, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. See, this was a witness to those people who were looking on the camp of the Israelites. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Now, I was reading a little commentary on this, and this person said, Is God a murderer? Because he took these people and he killed them. He didn't do it directly. He had Moses instruct the people who would be with him to go out and kill everybody. And this is one of the problems that people on the outside of the fold of Jesus Christ, the church, they look at this and they say, look at your God. He is a brutal, ruthless God that would do this. On the contrary, he was preserving those who did not wish to fall into idolatry. He was a protector of that which is pure. And he is completely just as well as completely loving. And he always must judge sin. And so that's what he had the people do as well. And the people, how did they kill with the sword? What is our sword? It is the word of God. We do the same thing when we bring out the word of God. It's like taking a sword and killing somebody because it lets them know they are under judgment. That's why people don't like to read it. When you read it, you see this, I'm guilty. Oh, I'm so guilty. Oh, I'm really guilty. Put that thing down. I don't need to feel this guilt. I don't want to feel bad, you know. But there's the good news once you feel bad, and that's where preaching the cross in order to give the good news, you have to do it in that order. We're under judgment, and then there's good news. 
And there's a time to rejoice. It's like David was saying in Psalm 51. Open my lips that I might sing your praises and declare your righteousness. It's, it's all good after that. Because we can't change it. God can't change it. He gives us the ability to do whatever he wants us to do. We don't have to worry or fret. Now he could have done this for the Israelites. But the Israelites were what? <clears throat> Stiff-necked. They wouldn't do it. Now... As we go on here in verse 30, let's read this. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. Now go, lead the people to this place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sins. And the Lord struck the people with the plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. So not only did 3,000 people die from the sword, but there were thousands probably that died from the plague afterwards. And God judged them for it. Now, we are in the dispensation of grace. God does discipline those whom he loves, but he also gives a lot of grace. We're not under the law that is here. Now, 3,000 people died that day that the law was delivered to them. What happened on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was delivered. You see the contrast there? The Old Testament, 3,000 people died because of the law. In the New Testament, 3,000 people got saved because of the grace of God. God intends for us to see that. This is not by accident here. So we're going to apply this. The way that we're going to apply this is, first of all, is it possible to have one's name blotted out of the book of life? Because we just read that. God says, well, I'm going to blot their name out of the book of life. This is like an anthropomorphism that's delivered here that we can kind of understand. Is there a real book with all the names of all the people? Well, they're... Could be a real book. I don't know. And how big would that book have to be? Big. A lot of names in there, right? It'd have to contain every name of everybody on the face of the earth. Or it contains the names of those who are saved. The others are just a census. There's other books up in heaven. We don't know. But a clue for this is in He Who Overcomes. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it talks about the person who overcomes he will have his name written in the book of life and he will not blot it out. God will not blot it out. So anybody who overcomes, your salvation is secure. Who is he who overcomes? The one who believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is the person that overcomes. It's not some work that you have to do. It's not an obstacle course that you have to go through. It is simply you believe, you're an overcomer, your name is in the book of life, it will not be blotted out. That's the progression that scripture goes through. So if you're worried, well, can I lose my salvation? If you're saved, your name is not going to be blotted out. Might you be disciplined? Well, yes. Might God take you to the woodshed? Oh, yeah. Do we know what the woodshed means? I mean, are we so far, am I so far in my generation that I'm the only one that knows what that means? Because we don't spank kids today, right? <clears throat> this idea, you'd take a child and you'd, all right, let's go to the woodshed. I mentioned, I think, uh, years ago, my mom. She can remember her mom, my grandmother. Her name was Oval. That was a nice name for the 
period of time back then, but Oval would turn to my mom, Dolores, and would tell Dolores, go out to the peach tree and pull a switch off of there. And she'd have to break off her own switch and she would use it on her. Now, a switch, that would be child abuse today. My grandmother, Oval, would have been cast into prison without any reprieve whatsoever. It would have been child abuse. And my mom turned out great, you know, except for that little thing that she had going on. She turned out great. And, And this is something that a parent does, disciplines. This is something that God can do. But we're not going to lose our salvation. If we trust in God and we have fully put that trust in him, we're in like Flint. But remember... We can lose reward, and we can be disciplined. Now, I'm going to close with this. Aaron and Moses. Aaron, at this point, he hasn't arrived in his walk with God, so to speak, like Moses had. Moses had finally arrived. Aaron made up an excuse for how the golden calf came to be. And he clearly lied about it. He was, I'm certain, afraid of the personal consequences he might suffer. And so he wanted to make up a good excuse. The consequences were that people died. Because Aaron was disobedient, thousands of people died. Now, to carry that with you would break you. But it was on his shoulders. He had to do this. With Moses, Moses used to make excuses too. Remember Moses? God shows up, burning bush. Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh. What does he say? First one is, I'm not good enough, God. Who am I to go before Pharaoh? I haven't chosen anybody but you, and you're the one. You're the chosen vessel to go. Second excuse, I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't do it. Third excuse, They won't believe me if I show up. Fourth excuse. I'm not a good speaker. Fifth reason. Send somebody else. What a whiner, right? Now, we're all whiners when it comes to this. But So Aaron making excuses. It was a lie wrapped in reason. Moses was lying, wrapping it in reason. He just didn't want to do it, right? And God showed up later. He was going to kill him. And it happened to be his wife that saved his life. Good going for the wife. Saves his life. You know, it's a great thing. But Moses had managed to get to this point where he said, God, if you have to blot me out of the book of life and save the people, save them. He was willing to die for the people. He had come so far in his walk with God that he was like this. He saw him face to face. Now, we might lament, well, I don't see God face to face. No, but we are more blessed if we do the things Moses did and we don't see him face to face. We are more blessed than Moses if we can do that. And so there is hope for us in this. Aaron, he didn't want to resist the people. He made up an excuse to tell Moses. Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh, and he made up five excuses to tell God. Both made up excuses when it came to doing what God wanted. I believe in our flesh we do the same thing. We give to ourselves excuses. We give to others excuses. We give God excuses. And remember what the definition of an excuse is. Excuses are lies wrapped up 
in reason. Now, I can imagine if we are making up excuses, if God wants us to do something and we say no, I don't want to go down the road. Well, people might die if we don't do that. Now, in the military, this is true. If they're out there fighting a war and they're making up excuses why they don't want to do something in the military, people can die. If we don't do something like that, where God tells us to do something, will people die? Well, you know, God is sovereign. And he has determined who is going to be saved according to his foreknowledge. And so I don't know that we can affect that. But we can certainly affect the lives of people. Now, I'm going to give you a personal example of this. I have two minutes left. Two weeks ago, one of the things that people expect of a pastor is you do visitation, right? Now, it doesn't say that in Scripture. It's something that we just made up. But I decided to do some visitation. Not that I like to shy away from it, but, you know, you get tired, right? You know, I just want to sleep. You don't sleep. You get up and you go do what you need to for the sake of others. Now, not that I'm the good example because I'm not. There's plenty of times where I said, I'm not going, you know, and I was stiff-necked. But I went and saw Yolanda, and she was recovering in La Mesa, and, and she was in a lot of pain, you know. And, and so we prayed for her and her uh, neighbor in her room was there and she was listening and the neighbor got to see us pray for Yolanda and I'm sure it was an encouragement to Yolanda to be there after the surgery she's going through and then the neighbor ladies thought how beautiful Patty was told Yolanda about that it was just it was just an encouraging time being there right after that we went down to Chula Vista and we visited a childhood friend of mine and my brother's who was dying of pancreatitis and I took my granddaughter and I took my wife and we went in there. And he called me when we were back in Baton Rouge. I was in the airport and he said he was lonely. And not many people were coming and visiting him. And I know we offered a bit of encouragement. And so we were able to offer encouragement. And again, not that I'm the good example, that's just one example, and I'm sure many of you have these same types of examples where you affect somebody's life. And this is the blessing. There is the downside that, man, if we don't become obedient to God, we affect people's lives in a negative way. But if we say yes to God, ah, there's so many blessings. Blessings that lead to this point. This is in the next chapter. Exodus 33, verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, talking about going with them in the wilderness, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. If God showed up because you were willing to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others and he comes up to you and he goes, I am pleased with you and I know you by name. If God said that, showed up to you and said, I am pleased with you, how would that make you feel? Right on, man. That's righteous. That is good. That's what God wants to give to us. He knows you by name, and he wants to be pleased with you. All we have to do is say, whatever you want, God. This is my prayer for you. Whatever God wants to do, don't make excuses. Don't say, I can't do it. Did God not create your mouth? Did he not give you two hands? Did he not give you the ability to... Open up that mouth and speak good things. He did. We can go out and be a blessing to all those who are out there.
just like Moses was a blessing to these people, and he was a blow it to begin with. Not only was he disagreeable, not only did he make excuses, but he was a murderer. Let's pray we don't make these same mistakes and that God is pleased with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Moses being one who would sacrifice everything for the sake of others. And Jesus, our example, the one who did that very thing, sacrificed his very life for the sake of others. Lord, if you call us to do something, help us to hear clearly. Help us not to make excuses. And with your help, this will be accomplished. In Jesus' name, and the church said,